Welcome everyone. My name is Carol Gifford, and I'm Vice President and Chief of Staff here at CSIS. Uh, first, I'm sure most of you or all of you know that uh, um, Chairman Tom Lantos passed away this morning. He, was, um, he described himself as an American by choice and he was a great leader and just want to remember him today. Uh, Peter Quilter, who was one of our speakers, has worked for him for the past year or so and um, we're grateful that he was able to make it today. In addition to my role uh, working for John Hamry, I also served as the co-director of the Commission on Smart Power, which released its final report on November 6, 2007, exactly one year before the presidential election. This was on purpose because the target audience for the report is the presidential candidates, their advisors, and other opinion leaders who will influence the next administration's foreign policy direction. The report is by nature a blue sky report. Most commission reports are. That said, it makes specific recommendations on how the next president, regardless of party, can take some specific steps towards implementing a smart power approach to U.S. global leadership. The report has generated terrific response, and smart power has become somewhat of a buzzword on the campaigns and in political circles. CSIS is very proud of the work that Joe Nye, Rich Armitage, our two co-chairs, and the other commissioners uh, did in, in this report, but we view it as a starting point, not in an end of itself. Therefore, in each of the areas where the Commission made a recommendation, we're now developing projects to dig deeper, and we're also looking at specific regions to help better define what works where, because it is clear that smart power is not a one-size-fits-all approach. In fact, while there's a section in the report which very briefly discusses regional differences, our approach must be tailored on an almost country-by-country -country basis, and today's session is part of that effort. We've asked our speakers to talk about how the United States can improve its smart power in the Americas, but the Americas itself is a diverse region. The differences between Canada and Trinidad and Tobago are obvious, but even neighbors such as Venezuela and Colombia face vastly different challenges and present vastly different challenges to the United States. Our, our approach must take this into account. Let me now quickly introduce our speakers. You have their bio, so I won't go into too much uh, detail. Our first two speakers, Luigi Naudi and John Maisto, have seen it all and are therefore uh, extremely well positioned to share their insights on U.S. policy towards the Americas. Ambassador Naudi is a 23-year diplomat whose work has spanned the region. He was the first U.S. citizen to be elected Assistant Secretary General of the OAS uh, under Cesare Gaviria, and he was Acting Secretary General for almost a year between the terms of um, Secretary General Gaviria and Secretary General Insulza. In the State Department, Ambassador Naudi led the talks that culminated in a peace agreement in 1998 between Ecuador and Peru. Ambassador Maisto has also served at the OAS as the U.S. Ambassador in the Bush Administration. He has served in ambassadorial posts in Venezuela, Nicaragua, and Panama, as well, as well as other staff postings in Costa Rica and Bolivia. We also have two senior congressional staff members here today to comment on what our two ambassadors say. Let me just note that regardless of which party wins in November, one of these two gentlemen will become a senior official in the next administration working on issues on the Western Hemisphere. They represent the next generation of policymakers, and we're delighted to have them here with us today. <laughs> um, first, uh, Carl Meacham is the only one of our speakers who has not worked at the OAS. Um, so I, I, I'll leave that for to the others to judge. But he has the distinction of serving as the senior staffer on the Americas for Senator Richard Lugar, the ranking Republican on the Senate Foreign Affairs Committee. Peter Quilter is the senior staff member for the Western Hemisphere on the House Committee on Foreign Affairs, uh, chaired by 
uh, uh, Congressman Lantos. He's a lawyer by training and has extensive experience in the U.S. government, the OAS, and the private sector. Finally, I want to thank Peter DeShazo, the director of the CSIS Americas program, for not only bringing together such a distinguished group of speakers, but also for continuing to build a strong program that takes an objective and forward-looking approach to the region, our neighbor that is too often neglected. Peter will moderate, and I expect a lively discussion. So thank you very much for being here, and turn over to Peter. Thank you very much, Carola. It's a real pleasure to, to welcome everyone here. I, I won't say anything more uh, than to sort of state the, in terms of our, our friends who are here from the media, all of the comments today are on the record, except for the comments that will be made by Mr. Quilter, which are considered not for attribution. So I ask the TV cameras to please turn off your cameras when Mr. Quilter is speaking, but the rest is uh, on the record. Uh, we'll begin with uh, Ambassador Ainaudi. Uh, at my age, I think I have to do something to get the blood circulating, so I'm going to stand up. Um, I'm going to thank um, Peter de Shazo, who's already been thanked by Carol McGifford, whom I also thank. And uh, I have been looking forward to this moment, uh, in part because this is an, is an extraordinary panel of people who know each other, have worked on uh, enough similar things uh, so that we may, in fact, uh, be able to show you something uh, either on the points we agree or those on which we don't. Um, and. Uh, I also want to uh, thank this audience uh, because uh, I'm impressed uh, at this turnout and at who you are. Um, the Commission on Smart Power concluded that the next President of the United States, regardless of political party, should make up for what it called, and I quote now, the absence of American leadership by complementing U.S. military and economic might with greater investments in soft power. This is an excellent report, but I would start by offering uh, two reformulations. First, international leadership requires international participation. From 1995 to 1998, I was the representative of the United States in the effort to end fighting between Ecuador and Peru. 5,000 Special Forces soldiers from the two countries were confronting each other in very difficult Andean terrain. We needed to separate them and then to try to find a lasting solution to a dispute that went back to colonial times. Four countries, Brazil, Argentina, Chile and the U.S. acted together as treaty guarantors. All contributed soldiers to the separation of forces and subsequent military observation. My guarantor counterparts and I would share intelligence, listen to each other's views, and meet until we hammered out a course that all our governments would support. The issues were difficult but the give and take was mutual. Often, 
our meetings led to an outcome different from anything any one of us had started with. It took three years, but we succeeded where few believed we could. The lesson I draw for us this morning is that international leadership requires the willingness to participate first in developing consensus and then in following through. My second reformulation is that rather than complementing existing power, the bigger problem is to integrate the various elements of power. You can't just say, we'll deal with this just militarily and this just economically and that over there just diplomatically. You can't say, we'll deal with this just multilaterally and this one bilaterally and this one will just take care of unilaterally. Most important problems require the simultaneous application of all elements of power, hard and soft, multilateral and bilateral. Let me now turn to the five areas of the Commission's report. And what I'm going to say, please have no illusion uh, I was over at the OAS and somebody said, aha, hey, Naudi, you're going to be speaking for somebody. Uh, I'm not. I'm speaking entirely for myself. I'm not even going to try to be bipartisan. Uh, all I'm going to try to do is be nonpartisan. Okay. First, alliances, partnerships, and institutions. The Commission argues, and I quote, three approaches could help. Renewing our commitment to the United Nations, reinvigorating our alliances, and working to erase the perception that the United States has double standards when it comes to abiding by international law. International organizations are not, let me tell you, a panacea. They need the active support of their members. And even then, most operational matters must of necessity be dealt with bilaterally or in groups of nations smaller than the whole. But they always, problems always have a multilateral dimension that must be taken into account. To ensure that it can be better integrated into the U.S. policy process and in a better position to explain what falls into its province to the other member states the U.S. mission to the OAS should be at least doubled in size. If consultations with other members yield an effective program, we should also double our annual quota. While costs have soared and presidential summits have asked more and more of the OAS, quotas have remained stagnant and staff and programs have been steadily cut. No matter how much we renew our commitment to the OAS, however, uh, this is still a world of nations. And if we talk about the Americas, as Carol McGifford very properly said at the start, they are very, very different nations. The United States needs strong and peaceful bilateral ties to its neighbors, to what in Spanish would be called its países limitrofes. Canada, Mexico, and I would add Central America and the Caribbean. Sub-regional groupings like CARICOM offer collective opportunities for many needed activities. 
Like our immediate neighbors, South America's countries must be approached globally as well as regionally and bilaterally. On some issues, energy, the environment, nuclear non-proliferation, no global approach is possible without at least some of the hemisphere's countries. The reliability of the United States as an ally is being tested right now with regard to Colombia. That the FDA is bogged down in the US Congress, despite the success of Plan Colombia, is a caution against being too optimistic about US-Latin American relations. Finally, Cuba is certainly no ally, but it is an alliance problem. Cuba is a founding member of the OAS, but the exclusion of its government has for more than 40 years also excluded Cuba from the growing regional consensus that found its expression in the Inter-American Democratic Charter. In practice, all member states, including Cuba itself, will have to agree on how and when Cuba might resume its seat. So this is not something the United States can decide unilaterally. The United States could, however, join with other countries to ask the OAS Secretary General to explore what might be done. Sandra Day O'Connor says in the Commission report that, and I quote, the decision not to sign legal frameworks the rest of the world supports is central to the decline in American influence in the world, unquote. The United States should, in my view, put an end to the use of Guantanamo for detentions, end Article 98 sanctions against countries that join the International Criminal Court, and ratify the American Convention on Human Rights and the Inter-American Convention against the illicit manufacturing of and trafficking in firearms, ammunition, explosives, and other related materials, generally known by its Spanish acronym of SIFTA. We have signed both. We should ratify both with whatever reservations might prove necessary. Putting laws on the books, of course, is not enough. Our current presidential campaign has made the point quite nicely in the debates over health insurance. In an article entitled, Consider It Done, question mark, the journal Health Affairs reviews the efficacy of mandates in expanding health insurance coverage and finds that compliance varies greatly depending on the quality of the laws and on their enforcement. The OAS in recent years has worked hard to reduce such slips twixt the cup and the lip. Meetings of states' parties follow up treaties to improve compliance. The harmonization of national laws to bring them in line with treaty mandates has scored notable successes on anti-corruption, extradition, and control of illegal drugs. The U.S. government deserves much credit for its financial and technical support to many of these activities. The administration has even invited the ministers of justice of the hemisphere to meet here in Washington this spring. But the United States could and should do much more to support regional capacity building. To mention just one very simple example, 
the U.S. should be sure to nominate good candidates for the month-long course in international law run in Rio de Janeiro since 1973 by the Inter-American Juridical Committee. Participation in this course regularly turns good mid-career lawyers into leaders with a network of regional contacts. Second, the Commission argues elevating the role of development in U.S. foreign policy can help the United States align its own interests with the aspirations of people around the world. The role of the U.S. government in the development of other countries is controversial. Nothing arouses greater resentment and resistance in the U.S. public than the idea of handouts to foreigners when we have unresolved problems here at home. There are, however, two areas in which fresh and not inherently costly U.S. policies could contribute importantly to regional development, citizen security and education. For years, thousands, even millions, have entered the United States illegally to better themselves in ways impossible in their countries of origin. We need immigrants. But we do not need shadow communities that live in the dark at the margin of the law. We need to regain control in a way that is worthy of our civilization. We need to shape an open system with dignity and responsibility for all. We need enforceable controls, defined guest worker rights, clear requirements for citizenship, and respect for our national security needs. Relations with our países limitrofes cry out for such a comprehensive approach. But today, I want to focus only on criminal deportations. For a decade now, the United States has formally removed, is the Department of Homeland Security formula, more than 70,000 aliens a year who have run afoul of U.S. law. Mexico and countries in Central America and the Caribbean receive repatriation flights daily. The results have been strategically ineffective, locally destabilizing, and regionally dispiriting. A year ago, a UN World Bank study of criminal deportations to Jamaica from the United States, the United Kingdom, and Canada gingerly concluded that, and I quote uh, the marvelous obfuscatory language that we in the international organization community use and which destroys our credibility so often, um, quote, assisting in reintegration efforts for deported offenders could be a cost-effective way for deportee-sending countries to promote development and weaken international crime networks. Look, we obviously need to defend ourselves, but we also need to help our neighbors defend themselves. The next Summit of the Americas to take place in Trinidad and Tobago in April 2009 should ask the OAS to develop new initiatives on citizen security. Third, the Commission argues that bringing foreign populations to our side depends on building long-term people-to-people relationships, particularly among youth. Our Declaration of Independence 
proclaims that, and I quote, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them. There is no better bully pulpit than one where everyone is in attendance. The UN, the OAS, and other multilateral organizations are ideal venues to set forth our views and explain our actions. Scholarships have for years accounted for an important but unheralded portion of the OAS budget. The Secretariat does a remarkable job in fomenting training and information exchanges. But much more could be done to strengthen or establish support for experts in drug control, terrorism, transnational crime, human rights, civil emergencies, and the mitigation of natural disasters. A new Inter-American Academy of Public Administration could function along the lines of the Inter-American Defense College with students nominated by the member states. CARICOM, SICA, the Andean Pact, and Mercosur could, I am sure, put to excellent use regionally supported training activities in whose design they participate. All countries should reserve places in their diplomatic and military academies and other advanced schools of public service for counterparts from neighboring countries. Fourth, the Commission suggests that continued engagement with the global economy is necessary for growth and prosperity, but the benefits of free trade must be expanded to include those left behind at home and abroad. Look, the dominant reality is that the Western Hemisphere is inexorably integrating. Our neighbors buy ten times more of our merchandise export, exports than does China. This interdependence could become a competitive asset for all concerned. The countries of the hemisphere could be a secure strategic anchor and a mutually supportive foundation for each other in this uncertain world. But that is frankly a utopian thought so long as protectionism takes precedence over mutual adjustment. In this regard, the Commission's concern for those left behind at home and abroad is very positive in recognizing the fears and dislocations caused by globalization in the U.S. as well as in our even more vulnerable neighbors. Perhaps the next summit might commission a report on the measures needed to ease transitions, preserve national ways, and prevent homogenization. Then, perhaps, protectionism can be addressed politically as well as economically. Fifth, the Commission concludes that energy security and climate change require American leadership to help establish global consensus and develop innovative solutions. Brazil's scientific capacity, its progress on fossil as well as non-fossil fuels, make it a global player on energy as well as on the environment. Were it possible to add in Canada, Mexico, and when the poisons subside, Venezuela, the regional opportunities would certainly be enormous. 
In the meantime, the region should certainly be well represented in the Commission's recommended Joint Technology Development Center. Finally, the Commission concluded with a call for a strategic reassessment of how the U.S. government is organized, coordinated, and budgeted, including the appointment of senior personnel who could reach across agencies to better align strategy and resources. Well, better internal integration is obviously needed. But we also need senior personnel who could reach across countries to better align strategy and resources. What happens if we in the U.S. solve all our own internal interagency and civil military problems only to then find that we and other countries still lack the trust and the know-how to work together? The deterioration of the international system should be a major concern for everyone. The multi we need an urgent restart on rebuilding multilateral capacity. The multilateral evaluation system developed by the OAS to coordinate and assess national drug programs shows it can work. But though U.S. support has been essential, along with that of Mexico and other countries, I gather cuts are being planned to accommodate other foreign assistance needs. This is a bad mistake. Legal frameworks and international institutions are essential for bilateral and other activities to be at their best. International professional training and coordination of the kind I've been advocating here should not be considered foreign aid. They are necessary to build the capacity we require to make cooperation sustainable regionally and internationally. Every U.S. department and agency should have a core of public servants who spend part of their careers working in the U.N., the OAS, or other international organizations. Such a tour might even be a requirement for promotion to the senior executive service. Institutional ties maintained by a network of professionals who know how to work together can provide both early warning and containment of issues that might otherwise turn into problems. In effect, a valuable insurance policy for progress and peace. What I'm advocating is necessarily a long-term approach. It takes time to educate and train people, time to build trust. It's not enough to know where you want to go. You also need to know how to get there. You need skills and you need friends. Nothing will last unless the interests of all concerned are advanced. In international politics, there's no map quest where you can punch up instructions. There is just a lot of hard work with others. Maybe we should call this a diplomatic surge or a smart power surge. Ambassador John Maston. Thank you, Carola McGifford, for the introduction. Thank you, Peter DeShazo, for the opportunity to be here. And now I have to follow Luigi Ainaudi. That's in my professional life, uh, just working with that man has been a wonderful privilege. And you have uh, seen 
the reason why today. We're here today to uh, take a look at, through this timely and needed initiative on the part of CSIS, uh, toward what the new U.S. administration will face early in 2009 in our hemisphere, which is also our neighborhood. What its policy objectives should be and how the new leadership hopefully would employ the vast power of the United States to achieve them and to do it smartly. Before the end of 2008, as the new foreign affairs team prepares for the first months of the new administration, they will take stock a prediction. They will find a pretty good hechos concretos list, one that has enjoyed effective bipartisan support as well, upon which to build a new U.S. policy. It will include a firm bipartisan commitment to democracy and non-intervention, and belief in the 2001 Inter-American Democratic Charter as the basis as a basic political construct for dealing with all hemispheric politi political issues, and by the way, that includes Cuba. They will find the fact that governments elected democratically and governing democratically, and not whether they are left or right, is the basis for productive relations with the United States. They will find a commitment to multilateral engagement at the OAS for political issues and the Inter-American Development Bank for development but I do agree with Ambassador Ainaldi on the need for much more. They'll find FTAs in place with Chile, Central America, and the Dominican Republic, Peru, and hopefully Colombia and Panama. They'll find a Millennium Challenge Corporation with compacts with Honduras, Nicaragua, El Salvador, and pre-compact arrangements with Guyana, Paraguay, and soon Peru. And debt relief for the poorest regions in the country, in, in poorest countries in the region and a U.S.-Brazil biofuels partnership, and a U.S. naval ship comfort mission in 2007 that delivered health to two, to, in 12 countries to 100,000 citizens, and a Merida initiative with Mexico and Central America, and successful Colombian policies, and a Southcom with successful below-the-radar engagement with its military counterparts, and with regard to Cuba, new initiatives to reach out to the Cuban people. All of these efforts are concrete, positive manifestations with bipartisan support of U.S. power. However, the public perception of the United States and the region overall is low. We know that, and we know the reasons why. No need to analyze them here. Peter DeShazo did a pretty good job in his essay. In this negative atmosphere, and amid prevailing cynical views about the United States from Latins and Caribbeans, the challenge for the new administration will be twofold. First, what policies to undertake, and second, how to address public perceptions about them and about the United States. I would submit that the driving ideal behind what the United States does in foreign affairs will continue to be, as my old mentor, when we worked on the Philippines, Phil Habib, used to say, quote, to do the right thing. This is a theme as well of a very wise former military commander General Tony Zinni, who notes in his book, The Battle for Peace, that, quote, this does not mean that America has always acted well, only that it attempts to act well has consistently guided us, close quote. The policy initiatives outlined uh, 
in Peter DeShazo's very good essay, um, let's see, uh, cover broad areas of needed focus by the United States to deal with many issues and problems and to do the right thing. And each would require the sure, deft, and smart application of U.S. power. The downside in dealing with all these many challenges is that we spread ourselves thin and that by addressing everything in some way, we are seen as not doing very much. And of course, there isn't, there's always the invidious comparison with U.S. attention to other parts of the world. The United States cannot and should not attempt to take on all of these areas, creating expectations and then failing to deliver. Besides, people in the hemisphere have heard promises over the years from their governments and supporting foreigners, and they have reason to be cynical. Rather, the new administration should, in my view, promote, identify with, and focus our energies and resources primarily on one area, one that clearly and unambiguously puts the people of the region, and particularly young people, at the center of our policy attention in ways they want, and in ways with which the American people can readily and enthusiastically identify and see benefit for the United States. That one area is education. This approach should be at all levels. Kinder and pre-kinder, primary, secondary, trade school, job retraining to deal with trade-related job loss, community colleges, university, graduate school, English as a second language, on-the-job and pre-employment education for government employees, and programs for the military and the police. And that's not everything. This approach would not be cheap. Our inputs would not be modest. Education in the Americas clearly is the key to well-being, stability, peace, and prosperity. Education translates into hope and opportunity, and education and hope and opportunity together translate into change. It is the change that democratic systems with all their flaws and weaknesses, and open economies that include smart social policies with all their contradictions, will foster. The next president of the United States can be, for all the Americas, the education president. How to do it? First, decide that education will be the primary policy focus. Announce it, say at the April 2009 Summit of the Americas at Port of Spain, Trinidad, at the same time that the new president does a lot of listening. Tell the Latins and the Caribbeans how the U.S. will exercise its considerable power to enhance, expand, and improve education at all levels. Engage the other leaders on how best to do it and put U.S. resources on the table. Start with what we already have and build with U.S. economic assistance through USAID, the Millennium Challenge resources, the Peace Corps, supporting NGOs already involved in education projects, working with the IDB and the World Bank, reshaping education efforts of regional development banks, English teaching programs and binational centers, engaging U.S. universities already involved in so many things, uh, investigation, training nurses, uh, English, so many things, supporting OAS efforts with more funding, multiplying successful OAS programs and or creating new ones, supporting environmental awareness and problem solving through education at all levels, increasing scholarships and fellowships significantly, such as Fulbright, and creating innovative new ones. By the way, does anybody remember CAPS in Central America in the 1980s? Um, 
increasing funding for English study to prepare young people to study in the United States, something that has been launched in Chile just recently. Promoting public-private partnerships to increase study and training opportunities in the United States. Offer incentives to the private sector. Get other governments to do the same. Expanding military education programs. And creating student loan opportunities for graduate and undergraduate students to study in the United States. Similar to loan programs underwritten by the United States government for U.S. citizens and green card holders. Now, I would submit that there are two additional in areas of modest expenditure that can achieve, uh, that, that can have achievable, measurable results to improve, people, to improve people's lives. And they are in health and citizen security. In health, the starting point is existing programs, enhancing and expanding them, and being creative and bold about new directions. The most exciting new U.S. initiative in health has been the U.S. Navy ship Comfort's 12-country visit to the region in 2007 and its treatment of 100,000 people. It represents a new military-private partnership approach. Institutionalize it, expand it to at least four such visits per year, and maybe four is a low number. The health needs are, the great, are, are that great, indeed, they're greater. The goodwill generated is enormous. It works. Now, U.S. concern with citizen security has already begun through some existing programs, but there is need for so much more. U.S. expertise, experience, lessons learned, and the opportunity for U.S. entities to learn from our neighbors is what we're talking about. The crime and gang issues are dramatic. For starters, we need to build aggressively on the Merida Initiative, but of course it has to pass our Congress first. Uh, uh, we need to build on the new strategy to combat gangs in Central America with accompanying at-risk youth targeting through social programs and helping gang members reintegrate into their home countries. It's a start. There's so much more to do. And on the new U.S. SICA, that's Central America Security Dialogue, expanded new funding from international financial institutions is a must, as well as work with Europeans who are encountering similar problems. With regard to multilateralism, Luigi Anaudi has said it all. I would say that vigorous U.S. participation in multilateral organizations with the objective of making them more relevant, if they are indeed to be more credible to people throughout the hemisphere, will be a major challenge. Part of doing this would be through increased funding for the OAS, but funding is not the only issue. Political will of the member states to take on political and other th thorny issues more forthrightly is, and that includes the United States. Yes, we need an urgent restart, and the new president could very well address attention there. And the United States must continue to champion relevant multilateralism in all possible ways, with particular emphasis on, as I always, always carry around with me, the Inter-American Democratic Charter, which... Uh, doesn't get paid as much attention to as it should these days. The challenge for the U.S. presence in the, at the Inter-American Development Bank is more creativity and risk-taking for projects that will have direct impact on people's lives. Luis Alberto Moreno's initiatives have provided a workable new direction and merit U.S. support. With education as the centerpiece and health 
citizen security, and relevant multilateralism in support, the simple basic message for U.S. public diplomacy would be the United States cares about individual citizens, their families, and particularly young people. And how does it care? By explaining and launching new policies, energizing and coordinating our institutions, both public and private, marshalling our own resources with significantly increased funding, and leading efforts for new international financial institution funding. Simultaneously, we must continue the policies that work, beginning with support for Colombia. And those at work include strengthening human rights, promoting economic reform and reducing corruption, the MCC, free trade agreements and the goal of a free trade area in the Americas, small business enhancement, military exchanges, Southcom's hugely important engagement with professional militaries throughout the region, and Caribbean third border initi initiatives launched by Secretary Rice in security and trade. In addition to his traditional strong ties with the Países Limitrofos, Canada, uh, Canada and Mexico in the North America uh, uh, construct, and uh, the, the NAFTA construct, two important countries deserve special policy attention. Mexico, with 107 million Mexican citizens, and Brazil, with 188 million Brazilian citizens. The United States-Mexico relationship and the success of our contiguous neighbor are of vital importance to the United States. I don't have to go into the reasons. The key elements of the relationship will continue to be what we all know them to be, migration and border management and making NAFTA work better in security and anti-crime and narcotics and arms flows cooperation and the Welcome Merida Initiative and cooperation in multilateral institutions. A standing interagency task force approach to this vast relationship under White House direction would be a useful operational way to manage it on the U.S. side plus, of course, regular ministerial meetings with Mexicans, with the Mexican government. Brazil, as the largest and most influential South American democracy, exerts huge regional and multilateral influence. Our shared objectives and successful cooperative programs in so many areas, usually below the radar, serve our mutual interests very well. The Biofuels Partnership is a harbinger of more joint efforts. The United States should continue to welcome the positive Brazilian role in the region, such as in Haiti. An ongoing challenge will be more co cooperative work in multilateral institutions and, of course, on the trade agenda. How we convey the message is hugely important, perhaps as important as the policy itself. Cabinet-level visits are excellent vehicles, and the recent record is commendable. However, to maximize the impact of the new administration's new policy, the United States will need the presence in the White House of someone who has the ear of the new president. Such a person would enhance U.S. policy and the perception of the United States in multiple ways. It would start with respectfully listening to Latins and Caribbeans in travel throughout the region. It would include public diplomacy both in the region and explaining the region's importance throughout the United States. It would provide another vehicle to keep the Congress informed, and internally, it would help break down the inevitable stove piping and turf battles in Washington. I saw from the inside how Mac McClarty fulfilled that role, and how the absence of a Mac McClarty type person would have helped us. However, it is vitally important that the person in this position be the right one, someone who truly has the access 
and the ability to do the job with our neighbors. Frankly, without such a person, it would be better to have no one in that particular job. A final word. There is a real opportunity for the new United States administration to proffer a serious, newly energized, bipartisan approach to the Americas. However, unless and until the poisonous debate on immigration is overcome by serious policy, and until we have closure on outstanding trade agreements, particularly Colombia, the regional reaction will be one of cynicism, at best polite, but not necessarily so. This is a hugely full plate, and it includes all the elements of CSIS's smart power recommendations. But I submit that the next president, for his or her term, will be especially motivated to deal seriously with Latin America and the Caribbean using smart policies that represent smart use of U.S. power. And their motivation will be influenced, molded, and tempered by the new and future demographics of the United States. But that is for another CSIS study and event. Thank you. John, thank you very much. Uh, we'll now go into um, a brief, uh, brief comments by our, our two uh, guests uh, representing uh, from from Congress. Start with uh, Mr. Quilter, and remember, Mr. Quilter's remarks are for attribution, not for attribution. Excuse me. Well, I'd like to begin by um, uh, by saying that my own presence here, uh, uh, we discussed it this morning, whether I should even appear, given the death this morning of the chairman of, of our committee, and uh, and we decided that the work of the committee goes on, and and so here I am. Uh, I I would like to say very briefly that Tom Lantos was an extraordinary man. Uh, he was an extraordinarily unique voice in the U.S. Congress. He will be sorely missed uh, in the farm policy field in particular. Um, and um, and another reason for that is his was his bipartisanship. Uh, and I commend to your reading this morning's press release by the ranking Republican member of our committee uh, to get a flavor of that. Uh, okay. I didn't prepare a, um, a written thing. Everyone else seems to have done that, and I didn't. But I, I'm going to muddle through this anyway. Uh, one of the things we're not saying, you know, what I just heard here was two laundry lists of all the things we need to do, and they were they were they were good. They they were the the, the correct laundry lists, I think. But there, a couple things have to be said. Uh, one is that the next administration, whoever they are, Republican or Democratic, will have the great good fortune of succeeding this one. Uh, certainly in Latin America, and Canada as well, by the way. Um, that, what I mean there is that it, the, the situation cannot help but be less rancorous and divisive than it is now. A lot of people are talking about, uh, from where I am, uh, what, what initiatives do we put forward now, or do we just wait? 
uh, do we wait for the next administration? Again, not this is not a partisan statement. It's a uh, it's a statement of of uh, relating to the current administration. That said, I, I see the smart power exercise to some extent as an exercise in humility, and it's a good one. It's a it's one long overdue, I think. Uh, it, it is interesting that it comes from a think tank like CSIS. I think it's a good thing. I think it should have come uh, from this administration long before, but, but that's, how, that's where we are. Um, so where are we? Where are we in this hemisphere? Uh, we're in a false competition uh, that we may have had a hand in creating, but it doesn't matter. We're in it, uh, and we have to get out of it. We have uh, poll numbers that are horrific. Argentina's numbers are, are like Arab numbers uh, in, in terms of their vision of, of this administration and, unfortunately, this country right now. Um, we have a set of energy relationships which are getting more and more complicated in the region that are pretty much defining, I think, the dynamics of the, of the, uh, of the relationship as, as it goes forward. Uh, and we can't lose sight of that. We have uh, citizen insecurity issues that have now, I think we, we, sh we should admit this, become a, a very big part of uh, the democratic equation. They, they, these things are no longer separable. Um, we are encumbered right now with a very weak OAS. I agree with Luigi very much that that, that has to be part of the solution. Uh, it is the the institution right now is frankly being sorely tested by Venezuela. Uh, I don't know why we left ourselves without an ambassador there for more than a year. I just don't understand that. Um, Hector's uh, uh, hearing was last week. I'm so thankful that it finally took place. I hope the Senate moves speedily to put him in. With, with no uh, disrespect to Hector, I think it should have been Tom Pickering. I mean, we need, the, the way we have decided to deal with the very, very difficult and conflictive issue of the OAS right now is to walk away, is to say, it's too difficult, let's not do things there. That's, that's absolutely the wrong approach. We need to put our best people in, which I think is what Ambassador Naudi was saying, and we need to do it now. So smart power, yeah, smart power. I, I'm not sure smart power is enough. I, I think it has to be really, really smart power. Uh, and I, 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 I'm, I have said, uh, I have wondered aloud if we are capable of that right now. I think we are, um, but I think we have to do a little bit of rejiggering on our side to, to, to be able to pull this off. Um, what's our mission? Uh, I just came off a, a trip to Southcom, so I'm thinking in terms of missions now. Uh, by the way, uh, Southcom has gotten the smart power message, so that's a good thing. And and uh, and actually, I I uh, hope I'm out of my league here now. But in thinking that other other of the commands should uh, should emulate some of the thinking that's going on in Southcom right now. Um, it's a hearts and minds effort right now. Uh, the laundry list that both ambassadors have given us is the right laundry list, but. We'll, 
we'll, we'll, we'll go down that path. But, but it's a hearts and minds issue, going, effort, uh, mission right now. Our mission is good. Our mission has always been good. Uh, it has become vastly obscured in the past six years. We've got to figure out a way to get, get it heard and get it delivered. Um, Merida Initiative. Um, I am. I am. I have publicly supported it, and I still do. I think. Uh, I think it's it's the right way to go. It is an urgent need, and we have to fill it, uh, possibly in a way that only we can. And that's why we have to step up. However, let's think about this for a moment. If we do pass Merida, along with Plan Colombia, it will be the percentage of our aid going to this region will be vastly about guns and thugs, vastly. We need a companion effort that complements the extent to which we have a guns and thugs uh, reality going right now with the hemisphere. And finally, I've, uh, something that we need to do uh, and that we haven't, and it's a little, a little odd to say, but I think it would help. And this is something that we need to do in our own house. Uh, this is a discussion I had with a Republican uh, colleague of mine who I will not name, but may well be on this panel. <laughs> and that is that uh, we here in-house need to have a good cry. We need to have a good cry together about where we are. Once we've had that, I think we'll, we'll be off to the races. But it's something that we haven't done yet, and we're pretending we've done it, but we haven't. And then I think we'll be in a better place. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, we'll now go to Mr. Meacham, and then questions from the audience. Sure. Carl. Um, well, for, before I start, I, I would just want to say that you know my thoughts go out to uh, Peter, to the congressman's staff, and his family, uh, Congressman Lantos, was a uh, Holocaust survivor, uh, human rights advocate, champion, and uh, he's going to be missed. Um, smart power. Uh, the underpinnings of smart power, I think, provide us with uh, specific, a specific framework that we can use or that we should use, find useful, to define our relationships with specific countries. I don't think that there's a one-size-fits-all model here. Uh, I think some of the points that are highlighted in the report, uh, a cohesive policy, a calibrated policy, uh, one that uses coercion, as well as other incentives, I think is a very realistic, very positive approach, uh, one that focuses on customized relationships instead of a, a one-size-fits-all. I think that these things are extremely important. But I would say uh, any analysis as we go forward uh, of uh, our policy to the region during the last eight years um, requires for us to acknowledge you know, some of the positive things that have happened, Peter, as well as some of the things that could have been done better. Uh, and some folks have mentioned, I think Ambassador Maisto mentioned the laundry list of things that we've done well. but. On the other hand, as my wife likes to say, uh, if you want to understand policy, you got to look at the budget. The budget is really what tells you how the policy is really being played, not the pretty words, not the rhetoric. It's the budget. Uh, and if you look at the budget, the FY09 budget, 
you do see a lot of money going into uh, efforts to deal with narco-trafficking. It's not to say that we don't need those efforts. I, I would wish that our money, our allotted funding, would be much bigger than what it is so we can cover more things. But uh, you can definitely see that the priorities that the administration has had have to do with uh, narco-trafficking. Now, having said that, as we go forward, I would, and I, in the interest of, of brevity, um, what is the single issue, in my view, that this administration, or the next administration, I'm sorry, will have to deal with coming from the region? And a lot of people don't like to talk about this. A lot of people feel that this is not something that they want to do, you know, giving too much attention, not enough attention, um, is Venezuela. Venezuela, I believe, is going to be the key issue. And with that, Mr. Chavez is calling, I think. But, uh, uh, I think that it really uh, contains the biggest issues that the region itself uh, is struggling with. Uh, you have the issue of energy with Venezuela. Uh, and again, yesterday, Mr. Chavez made a threat that he was going to cut off oil in response to uh, the reaction of ExxonMobil. Uh, to their suit. Uh, uh, you have issues that deal with democracy, and we remember what happened uh, earlier with the RCTV issue and the closing of a privately owned uh, TV uh, uh, industry, and we have issues having to do with narco-trafficking. I would, I would want to focus a little bit today on the issue of narco-trafficking, um, because I think that this is really what's happening in Venezuela right now. Venezuela went from being a country that was a petro country to being now a country that's a narco country. Um, it is very clear to us, and, and this has been not only done in the media, but also in conversations that we've had with members of, of the administration, that uh, Venezuela is undermining counter-drug efforts in neighboring countries by serving as an increasingly frequent transit zone for Colombian cocaine on its way to the United States, to Mexico, to Central America, to Western Europe. Um, in 2005, the government of, 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 of Hugo Chavez decided uh, to end its long-standing long cooperative relationship with uh, U.S. Drug Enforcement, uh, claiming that our agents were spies and uh, refused to provide any evidence to that. An arbitrary measure. It's also known that organizations like the FARC and the ELN, uh, designated by the United States as foreign terrorist organizations, have enjoyed safe havens in Venezuela. This is clear. There's evidence to this. Um, despite many hesitations by our government to publicly admit direct support, uh, it's becoming very clear. Recent statements by uh, President Chavez on his support for the FARC and other organizations, uh, terrorist organizations, um, have given us evidence uh, to say that uh, Venezuela is involved in the protection, training, and arming of several of these groups. Um, so I would say that these linkages place Venezuela in a unique uh, place to lobby for the release of hostages held by the FARC. I think that they've uh, and I think that it, it should be applauded if they're trying to do something positive. But at the same time, I don't think they should get a get-out-of-free, uh, get-out-of-jail-free card. And we should ignore 
the other side of this. Uh, if the Venezuelan government uh, wants to continue engaging these groups in a constructive way, uh, I think Venezuela could be a valuable partner in dealing with a lot of these issues as it relates to narco-trafficking and dealing with the peace process in Venezuela. But unfortunately, uh, Caracas has not chosen to do this. Um, I think the next administration is going to face this as one of the key issues in the administration. We talked about our relationship with other countries in the hemisphere. Our relationship with, with Brazil presents some challenges. Our relationship with Mexico presents some challenges. Hopefully we can keep on developing our relationships with other countries in the regions. Um, but I would say that this is one of those core issues. And to deal with it, I would, uh, in much in line with the smart power approach, I would offer uh, a uh, short-term solution, or two or three short-term solutions to deal with it. Um, in Congress, we need to fund the Merida Initiative and the Central America uh, counterpart. Uh, this is going to give these countries a way to deal with uh, a lot of the drug trafficking that is coming out of places like Venezuela. Um, the second thing, I think we need to pass our Colombia Free Trade Agreement. My boss has been very clear on that. Um, and we're making our efforts uh, to persuade those that are on the fence uh, about this issue. Passage of this trade agreement would leverage our considerable aid commitment to Colombia. And it, uh, but if we lose, if we're not able to pass this trade agreement, and we're not saying that trade agreements are the end all here, because there are different issues that trade agreements have. There are there's some dislocation issues uh, as far as domestic industries. Uh, if, if, if these trade agreements aren't implemented the right way, there can also be negatives in the countries where uh, they're being implemented. But those things can be fixed. Trade agreements provide a framework for us to have institutional relationships with countries. And I believe that within this framework, uh, we can do a lot to deal with other issues that countries have. Uh, if we don't have a free trade agreement with Colombia, nevertheless, I think that they become much more vulnerable to um, countries like Venezuela. And I'd say the third thing would be, uh, and maybe this is more of a long-term approach, is we need to develop uh, a joint agreement or understanding, a framework to be able to work with Brazil on narco-trafficking issues in the region. Brazil is a country that has uh, interest in uh, being much more, um, much more of a participant in regional affairs. They're doing a wonderful job in Haiti. We have a modest agreement nevertheless, but a good one with Brazil insofar as biofuels. Uh, and I think that it's ready for them to step up into other areas. Uh, Brazil uh, still remains in the category of major, major drug transit country, but I believe that Brazil and the United States working together uh, could uh, probably create an effective way of dealing with uh, the narco-trafficking issue in the region. Um, and in closing, I'd say that, you know, Republicans and Democrats want a stable and democratic Latin America, want a stable and democratic Venezuela, uh, since that's what I started with. Um, I think that we are uh, willing to do that. I think that um, what you have here with Peter, with me, is, is you have a, a bond, a relationship that should attest to the willingness and the interest that exists in the Congress to deal on these issues. We are ready and willing to deal with this administration as well as the administration that's coming to deal with these hard issues. Uh, 
So these are my remarks. I look forward to your questions. Thank you. Thank you very much, Carl. Looking, looking very briefly at the comments uh, made by our, our, our principal speakers, uh, Ambassador Ainaudi and Ambassador Maisto, I, I note several points of convergence. One, clearly a focus on education as a, as a future focus of U.S. policy in the region. Second, on citizen security, which was named by both. Uh, third, a very strong commitment to multilateralism and to strengthening the OAS. Fourth, uh, a comment that both made I found interesting was the um, focus on youth in the hemisphere and the orientation of U.S. Uh, uh, policies in that direction uh, to create um, a both a in, in terms of, of the improving the national interest of the United States and improving the image of the United States through these policies, and of course the commitment to democracy and how that is uh, reaffirmed. Um, by both uh, by both speakers, uh, the floor is now open to questions. Please state your name and your affiliation. The gentleman in the back. I obviously uh, I felt there was little I could do really in relation to Venezuela, so I dedicated myself mainly to Central America. And that's where I want to go briefly today. Uh, in the U.S., the remittance is coming out from the U.S. If you divide that by 0.15%, which is basically what they send out, that's equivalent to $220 billion, which is about twice the size of the whole World Bank lending program. And this is a yearly development program that basically the U.S. Ha carries out within its border. In the case of El Salvador, uh, the Salvadorian, what it produced internally in Salvador amounts to $15 billion. What is produced by Salvadorians in the U.S. amounts to $22 billion. So if you put those things together, you also find out that El Salvador has been growing at a faster rate than China. My question here then is, these immigrants turned immigrants. They are easily forgotten in the homeland they are not very welcome rapidly in their host land. What can be done to empower them to vis-a-vis -vis their own homelands? Because the stronger they get in their homelands, the more useful their relations could be with them. El Salvadorians, they produce much more in the U.S. than what El Salvador produces there. They should, for instance, the immigrants, have about half, half of their general assembly in El Salvador that would really start showing off what we have. We have a de facto American Union, more integrated than Europe. So I would like to have your comments specifically on what we can, how we could use the immigrant community. Thank you. Gentlemen, any, any volunteers? I would just um, answer that question within the context of electoral politics. <laughs> um, um, <clears throat> One of the issues that dominates our foreign policy in the legislative branch are the domestic sources of foreign policy making. Um, we have a lot of constituencies, constituencies in this country um, that uh, are citizens here, but they also have families in different parts uh, of the world, particularly in Latin America. Um, as far as we're concerned, 
for us, the issues that relate to Latin America become domestic issues or state issues because of that large presence of, let's say, in, in, in Indiana, you have a lot of Mexican-Americans. Uh, so for us, uh, it's not only an issue of, you know, doing with, uh, well with the Merit Initiative or making sure that NAFTA works or developing close relationships with our Mexican counterparts, but it also becomes votes, votes in our state. So for us, cultivating those relationships, make, making sure that we serve our constituencies uh, also, I guess, would, would, would serve two purposes, a state purpose and an international purpose. I'll, let me just uh, say something quickly about that. And I, I, I recall there's a certain inevitability to, uh, to um, the ability of immigrant groups to exercise more power from this side. I, a, a small vignette, but I think it's an interesting one. Uh, I attended recently, uh, two weeks ago, uh, a members-only uh, meeting. They, they let some people in who are not members. Uh, on the Merida Initiative, and um, uh, it was conducted entirely in Spanish. It was all members of the Congressional Hispanic Caucus. It was not a Congressional Hispanic Caucus meeting. It just happened to go that way. And the, um, the interpreter who was there to assist our Mexican guest ended up sitting next to a nice man from Texas who didn't speak Spanish. Uh, just uh, just two quick comments. Uh, uh, it's it's a good comment. It's a good question. It's a good challenge. Um, the Inter-American Development Bank, I know, has been thinking about this. I'm not sure what they have come up with, but I would think that uh, that the Inter-American Development Bank <coughs> has a, uh, a role to play in this. Uh, number two, in the case of El Salvador, I do know the case of Salvadorian banks that are uh, channeling money from uh, uh, Remisas uh, uh, into the Salvadoran community, community by community, and offering um, uh, uh, community development projects uh, 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 dollar for dollar uh, in order to drum up business in the United States. I think there's a lot of room for uh, public-private uh, uh, partnership there. Uh, and, uh, but it, it is clearly an area for uh, uh, creative thinking. from the Brookings Institution. I'd like to endorse Ambassador Meister's focus on education for the principal reason that it takes the issue out of Washington and makes it a national issue whereby states and citizens can be involved in the panoply of education as it goes through. I applaud this fully. There is a question on the financing of education. And I don't know whether Ambassador Maestro is familiar now with the issue of microfinancing for schools, which is a big issue, in the gr a growing issue among evangelicals within the United States to fund schooling within the hemisphere. And how do you see this microfunding for small schools working into your overall US hemispheric education program? Thank you, Diana. I had 15 points. I'll make it 16 with adding that specific point. But that's kind of what I was referring to with regard to non-governmental organizations and private efforts. Uh, yes, I think there is a real opportunity there, and it really gets down to grassroots. Uh, 
Let me mention just one in particular. There's the Fabretto Foundation in Nicaragua, with which I'm really acquainted. They do wonderful work. There's a lot of uh, U.S. participation in it, including my own, uh, and they get to the grassroots. And it has nothing to do with the United States government, has nothing to do with the Nicaraguan government. It's, it's people who are really, really dedicated to educational op opportunities for disadvantaged, critically poor people in Nicaragua. That's just one example. Uh, thank you, Peter. And Nestor Ikeda, an associate press reporter for Latin America. Uh, from the opening statements of Mr. Einaudi and uh, Mr. Maisto, it seems that uh, you both are minimizing the role of uh, Hugo Chavez in the uh, next, gover next U.S. government foreign policy. Uh, Mr. Einaudi mentioned Venezuela only once and Mr. Maisto twice. And, but uh, Mr. Michan uh, said that uh, Venezuela and Hugo Chavez is gonna be a core issue in the next government foreign policy. My question is if you agree with Mr. Michan. Um. I think Venezuela is going to be a real challenge for the next administration. And uh, the next, next administration is going to take a fresh look at U.S.-Venezuelan relations. Hopefully, the president of Venezuela will take a fresh look at U.S.-Venezuelan relations. And if it were possible to begin a dialogue based on real-world shared interests, and there are several of them out there. Let me name a few. Energy is one, obviously, as uh, Carl mentioned. Co uh, narcotics trafficking is another. Um, terrorism and everything having to do with Colombia is another. There are issues out there. And there could even be a way, if the member states of the Organization of American States were so inclined to deal with Venezuelan issues as well. Uh, that would be good. There will be a new political moment. There will be a fresh political moment. And there will be a new opportunity. And uh, I'm hopeful that the new administration, uh, I can't imagine that it would not, take advantage of that opportunity. The question is, how would it be received in Caracas? Thank you. I think there's no doubt that um, tensions between the United States and Venezuela have become a major story. Uh, and it's a damaging story also. Um, it's damaging to the ability of the hemisphere and of the OAS, for example, um, to cooperate on many things because there is the sense um, in many areas that uh, the United States and Venezuela are implicitly at loggerheads and countries are um, not eager to get dragged into that fight. Um, 
So then there's a real question of strategy here. How does one deal with Venezuela and the challenges that are being created? One should not forget that a great deal of President Chavez's authority, if you will, stems from the injustices and failures of development uh, in Latin America, real and imagined, and from the indifference and hostility of the United States, real and imagined. I think the best way for everybody is to work on strengthening cooperation in those areas that are in fact being challenged uh, and demonstrating that those fears and concerns that Chavez articulates uh, are wrong um, and uh, so that one can see um, these what I would call self-correcting, because they really are self-correcting mechanisms. Chavez certainly did everything he could to win that December referendum. He didn't. Uh, I think we should focus on doing important things and avoid getting uh, into uh, unnecessary disputes. Ken Moskowitz, I'm a State Department. I'm a public diplomacy professional uh, with no expertise whatsoever in Latin America. But just to go back to the beginning, I think the Ambassador Inadi said something very helpful, as did Ambassador Meister uh, a few minutes ago. That is, um, but in looking at the poll numbers and why um, we don't do so well when um, respondents are asked um, why uh, do they like the U.S. or why do they dislike the U.S. and um, the policy that would have to be taken in response to that, uh, as Ambassador Meister said, that we have to look at youth and what we used to call the successor generation. I think it's very helpful, but to go back to where uh, Ambassador uh, Inaidi just finished, which is um, this large, uh, vast group of um, disenfranchised, um, uh, impoverished um, populations that you have in Latin America. Uh, I think, you know, from my perspective, where I'd want to go is um, to target those um, audiences in particular not so much the youth, but youth insofar as they're part of this marginalized group. I think um, Under Secretary Hughes said it very well when she, she said offer a, a, um, a message of hope and, um, and target uh, marginalized groups of whatever sort they are. In some societies it may be religious, it may be ethnic, but I think in Latin America it's these impoverished groups. Um, and I think then to connect it, to bring it back to, um, to Joe Nye and company, I, I think what he has in mind by smart power is that you have to connect the policy with those programs on the soft power side or the cultural diplomacy, the health programs, uh, the education programs. And I would just ask for your comment on whether in this case what we have to do is when we connect to our policies, uh, economics and trade, that we have to make sure that the message there is that we're offering hope and we're offering uh, programs which will help those large marginalized groups, the impoverished groups, uh, and not the elites, because I think that's how we're perceived, uh, how our policies are perceived. Thank you. Any response? Well, if, if I may, uh, thank you for uh, uh, opening up uh, again uh, this issue. Uh, I think we've actually got a problem uh, of 
um, greater resistance in many of the Latin elites than we do in many of the Latin publics. Uh, many of the publics, at least in the neighboring countries, uh, show their concern for practical progress by voting with their feet. Uh, and that's one of the sources of the immigration uh, to the United States. Um, now, uh, John Maystow, uh, I think, was very good um, in referring to certain very concrete things. Uh, I think that the visits, for example, of the um, hospital ship um, Hope in this comfort uh, program is a case of doing something extremely practical and positive uh, for advancing the health of people. Uh, if he can find a way uh, to um, convince people uh, to uh, really, the next president, to really think of himself as the education president and to find some ways of going beyond the much more modest kinds of programs that I was thinking of, uh, really to train people who understand uh, how to make our respective societies work and work together, uh, then all the better. Um, I do think um, that we need um, to deal with two things. One is theoretical and the other is practical. The theoretical thing, um, I repeat, is this question of international law and of making the United States not look as though it has double standards. Part of this will be solved, as Peter Quilter said, simply by the change of administration. Um, but I think that the next administration should nail it uh, in some of the ways that I tried to suggest in my earlier comments, um, uh, dealing with the issues that have been raised by Guantanamo, the International Criminal Court, um, and uh, other issues which have had the incredible result of turning this country, which is in fact a major force for human rights in our civilization and world, into one that is reviled as not being so. And that's a disconnect that we must reverse. Uh, but then there's a practical issue too. Um, and the practical issue, uh, I would go to uh, this question of uh, the free of the free trade uh, and globalization uh, and and the rest we are also identified with the dislocations created by globalization um, and it is a fascinating thing that while we ourselves have through what is protectionism on a European standard um, in agriculture um, and on a very American standard uh, in other areas. I see Sid Weintraub in the front. He will uh, know these matters much better than I. Uh, we have managed to put ourselves in a position where countries, major countries, Brazil, simply feel that negotiations with the United States on trade matters are not productive at this point because the United States is not interested in making concessions. Now, that's why I took out of um, the Smart Power Report uh, this concept of people being left behind on both sides. We seriously need to think about how to deal with that. And it would be useful if we thought it not just 
unilaterally in our own presidential campaigns and domestic politics, but in some way that involves others as well. And then suddenly you could see a turn toward the idea that the United States is acting again as a neighbor, which is what's really missing right now. Last question. I'm Timothy Towell, a retired Foreign Service officer. I'd like to ask a question of the panel, but teeing off on something that Peter said that I thought was fascinating. He didn't dismiss Luigi and John, but he said we all agree with the laundry list, and then went back to something that I'd heard the first time when I came in the Foreign Service in the Kennedy administration, talking about hearts and minds. Kennedy uh, replaced by Johnson, who said, in a Texas barnyard metaphor, if you got them by the balls, their hearts and minds will follow. Excuse me for the family. <laughs> I'd like to go talk about hearts and minds, because we all agree about the laundry list. But I spent 31 years in the hemisphere, 31 years with dictatorships. No, one democracy. Paraguay, we got rid of Stresner, and it's a corrupt, awful place now, I'm sorry. How do we engage hearts and minds? How do we go back to the idealism that people talk about with rhetoric that are in our basic concepts as Americans? What do we do besides implementing the laundry list to crank up that? Barack Obama, I'm a Republican by the way, talks about idealistic stuff every night on TV. Are we on the cusp of finally cranking off what people who talked in 1963 about hearts and minds are ready to implement? Or do we do both and do the wonderful laundry list that we all love? Gentlemen? Uh, I, uh, I welcome the question very much. I mean, I think that, that that is, in fact, I think what has animated the entire smart power exercise. It's, it's how, to, um, how to recast our relationship with the rest of the world. In this hemisphere in particular, I think we need to change the message. We need leadership because George Bush started his administration uh, saying that Latin America was tops on his priority list and somewhere along the line it fell off. It needs, I mean, we need leadership. Uh, we need to put our best people forward. That was my comment about Tom Pickering and, and, and people such as yourself, Ambassador. We need you back at the OAS, I think is what we need. Uh, and, and then we have to be smart. And what I mean by that is, John mentioned We've got to, uh, you know, we, we've sent a good message to, to Venezuela, and now we're sitting and waiting for their response. Nonsense. The way to deal with Venezuela is to fix our relationship with the rest of the region. Um, yeah, I think, I think it's really important to, one, uh, be clear about the fact that we've never really focused on Latin America very much in this government, that being Democrats or Republicans. Uh, it's always been an issue that we've had to deal with in crisis. There's never been a long-term view of this. We've tried with different policies in the past that didn't receive the necessary funding or were derailed because of other issues. Uh, but I don't think that there's a simple answer to doing it, to uh, getting hearts and minds. I think that the focus on customized relationships is the focus. And I think that we're not going to be able to do the same thing that we want to do with Mexico or Brazil or Argentina 
that we'll be able to do with Honduras, for instance. There's different interests. There's different levels of, of importance. That's a, an issue that we really do need to uh, acknowledge uh, to move forward. But I would think that um, the attempts by the administration to have closer relationships with certain leaders, and I focus on, on, on the invitation that, uh, that Lula, President Lula Brazil got to Camp David, that's an excellent excellent gesture. I think we should do the same thing with President Calderon. We need to develop and cement relationships with leaders in the region. They're not all going to be the same relationships. It's what hearts and minds we get, not all of them. That's what's, what, what, what matters. Um, again, Ambassador Tao always uh, raises uh, controversial questions. Uh, with regard to what we should do, I, uh, and I made a comment to Peter vis-a-vis uh, -vis Venezuela, I think we can walk and chew gum at the same time. I think we can uh, uh, deal with the rest of the hemisphere in practical ways that, by the way, are going to cost money. I'm a little tired of this notion that the United States should just be rejiggering existing budgets or reducing them and expecting to get more results from them. That's fantasy land. It's going to cost money if we're serious about this hemisphere. And everybody is to blame. The administration is to blame and the Congress is to blame. I feel very relieved at saying that publicly since I'm no longer in government. And number two, and number two on that, you know, uh, it's the Nike approach. Just do it. The new administration has to figure out what it wants to do, what emphases it wants to put. If it's going to be education, if it's going to be citizen security, if it's going to be health, if it's going to be governance, if it's going to be cor fighting corruption, if it's going to be... Uh, uh, the, Carl, you mentioned the narcotics issue. Well, this administration has been putting its money where the narcotics issue is. Okay. Uh, I happen to agree that we should be... Uh, I agree with you, Peter. We should have that real-world security interest on our own part, but we should have the other interest as well. That's the part that costs money. Luigi, you get the last word. Um, smart power takes... Smart power takes smart people. Um, and uh, since most of us are Democrats, small d, uh, what that means is... Um, trained, knowledgeable, skilled people. These are things that can be learned. Uh, I beg you to remember my proposal on the senior executive service. It's a very silly statement, but if the civilians in the public service of the United States were to pay attention to what the military learned through Goldwater Nichols, where they said, no generals unless You've had some joint experience, all right? The United States is in the middle of a world it has shown it can't handle, all right? No senior officials anywhere unless they have spent some time learning that world. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, we have food for thought for, uh, for 2008 and well into 2009. Again, thank you very much for having come. Thanks to our, our panel.